I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is an ABC podcast. Good plan, good plan. Who thought of this one? You're listening to the Out of Sanctum podcast. Here is a moment in time in the history of the AFL. In from the side, Houghton. She was surrounded by blue jumpers. Groundbreakers, history makers. Hello and welcome to the Outer Sanctum for another week. I am your host, Lucy Race, and today I am joined by two of my dear, darling, football-loving friends, and I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, Lucy. It's Kate Sear. It's Alicia Sometimes, and I'm pumped. Hello. Oh, my goodness. I love it when you're pumped. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a while. Is it getting harder to get pumped? in lockdown. It is so hard. Even when I go outside and I've put on my footy boots doing some gardening because I couldn't find my other shoes and I just thought, why not? That was the only way I got pumped in the last few weeks. I like that. How are you, Kate? How are you bringing football into your daily life? Oh, I was going to say I am pumped because the home and away season is finally behind us. We're moving into footy finals, which is exciting. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. But yeah, I'm excited. I'm actually loving the way that footy fans, especially in Victoria, are translating the COVID numbers into their favourite footballers. I think now that we're under sort of 50 cases, it's become a fun daily game. And I don't know, it's tickling my fancy. So as you mentioned, Kate, the 2020 home and away season is done and boy was it a season like no other we've seen in the last sort of few rounds we've seen retirements and delistings we've already seen a best and fairest and we now have the confirmation of our top eight before we look to finals though I'd love to ask you both what were your highlights from round 18 Kate there can only as a Hawthorne supporter there can only be one highlight from this round and in fact I think it's probably the only highlight of Hawthorne's year (laughs) If I can say that, that's a bit unfair perhaps to the Hawks. They had a tough season. Absolutely, my highlight of the round was Ben Stratton and uh, all of those who, who supported him. I was uh, I don't want to forget to mention that Paul Puapolo played his last game for Hawthorne, maybe his last game ever on the weekend, but it was Strats that uh, stole my heart. So I think many of our listeners will, will know this, but Strats played in his 202nd and final game. Up until that point, he'd only ever kicked one goal because he's a defender, of course, and that last goal was in round 19, 2000. 2010, and that made it the longest goalless streak of any current player in the AFL. And in Sunday's game with just a few minutes to go, Hawthorne were comfortably in front. And those of us who, who, you know, both of you go for Hawthorne too, of course, we were all hoping that he might drift forward or that Clarko might let him go forward and try and kick a goal. He did. And uh, in a lovely moment, Paul Puapolo got the ball in the Ford 50, dished off to Jack Gunston, who could have taken a shot and kicked his 399th career goal. But he dished off to Stratton, who was right in front of goal, and and Strat's duly converted. And it was just a a magical moment in a season that has been very short of magical moments for Hawthorne fans. I just wanted to mention stats man Josh Kay, who um, I love to follow. He's on Twitter, and you should follow him if you don't. He mentioned that Ben Stratton was on track to equal Jason Dunstall's Hawthorne club record of 1,254 goals, and that Strats would need just another 126,452 games in order to do it. (laughs) And I did the math and uh, I worked out that if Strats played a regular season of 22 games a year, it means that he would equal the Dunstall record in just 5,747 years from now. (laughs) So congrats, Ben Stratton. And um, how about you, Alicia? What was your highlight? 
I think it's the Saints. It's the first time they're in the final since 2011. St Kilda were just a powerhouse against the Giants at the Gabba. It was 82 to 30. And they kept GWS goalless in the second half. And they were just, you know, domination in the dictionary has now got St Kilda's face. <laughs> Jack Steele was a gun. Josh Battle kicked a great streamlined goal that you, you want on a training video. Dan Hannabury's return after a hamstring injury was just quite emotional. But I think it's consistency is the key with St Kilda in 2020 because, you know, they win over Port Adelaide or Richmond and then they have a two-point loss to Brisbane. But I encourage uh, listeners to go to the Saints website because there's this great article by Russell Holmesby that's called Just Gotta Win, A Brief History of St Kilda's Frenzied final round encounters and it's got some footage some uh, analysis but it's got a young pop music icon in Molly Meldrum as he invades the Junction Oval with the finals in the home and away season of 63 and it's just it's just glorious and it's a real trip down memory lane and yeah my dad's a sainter so for me this was the highlight. Oh, I love that. And I'd also say to people, you know, if you haven't seen the video of them singing the song at the end of that game, you should see it because you can just see what it means to everyone. They basically got into a bit of a jig. The thing I love about St Kilda is they've actually broken a membership record this year with 50,000 members, which is incredible to do in a year of COVID. I'm going to go to someone I don't normally go to this team for my highlights, but I'm going to Geelong and the highlight of a little video that made it onto social media this week. The Cats family is it all gathered together in the hub to watch Geelong play Sydney and Geelong needed to win that game to grab a top four spot and would have thought it was, you know, probably going to happen fairly easily. This was one of the games that was really, really tight. It didn't go the way that the Cats wanted and with about 30 seconds to go, McInerney kicked a goal to get the Swans within six points. So they actually needed to win. A draw wasn't going to be helpful either. So gets to sort of the last, inside the last 20 seconds of the game and the ball is heading towards the Swans forward half and then little Luna Enright, who's about 18 months old, hit a button on the Foxtel box. All of a sudden the screen just goes and I think it was the Melbourne Storm game came up and it was hilarity. There were kids jumping up and down trying to, you know, say, where is it, where's it gone? And there were people laughing, there were people scrambling to to try and find it. And I think we've all been there. We've all had that stress where you've hit the wrong button and, and lost what you're watching. By the time they finally got it back, the game's done and, yes, they can see that the Cats have won. What they actually missed was Mark Blitzarb's desperate smother that you could argue actually really did save that win for Geelong. So they would have been in for another tense 20 seconds if they'd um, hung around. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that was a huge moment, an incredible smother, and um, and really perhaps a you know definitely a season defining moment because it looked like the Swans were going to kick a goal there, and yeah, that could be absolutely crucial in the you know in the makeup of the entire season. So really exciting for Cats fans. It's good to see too that an eighteen month old acts like my brain because every time I'm watching TV, I've got that talent to turn the channel just as something is about to break. <laughs> like I can't help it. I think that we've all got that in us. I think it's hilarious. There's women's football that's happening and I know we haven't seen state women's football or any state football in in Victoria, but Queensland and WA are seeing finals. What can you tell me about those games? I'm going to go to you. Kate? Yeah, sure. Well, we've talked a lot on this pod over the last few years about the fact that women's footy has really been exploding in Queensland uh, in the last little while. And there are numerous grand finals, women's grand finals happening in Queensland this coming weekend. Uh, So Bond University is going to host four women's grand finals this Sunday, the 27th. At 10am, Jim Boomba meets Bean Lee in the final of the QFAW Division 2 South. Then at midday, Yoronga meets Corporu and will compete in the Development League Clash. The marquee event is uh, the one that everyone will be waiting for. That's happening at 2pm and that's the Quaffle Women's Decider between the Coolangatta Bluebirds, who wear the colours of Carlton, and the Yoronga South Brisbane Devils. And then at 4.30pm, it's a bit of a local derby in the QFAW Division 1 when Surface Paradise are taking on uh, Southport. So if you're able to get along to Bond University on the weekend, please do, please go and support the women. And uh, as someone who grew up in the area, I have to say, go cool and get her. <laughs> <laughs> and Alicia, what's happening in WA? Yeah, so with a waffle W... 
Peel's Thunder went from waffle women's wooden spooners to premieres in the space of 12 months after they won the grand final victory against Subiaco at Windy Joondalup on Saturday. And the reports literally were virtual gale force winds were making life difficult. Subiaco finished on top of the ladder this year and last year while the Thunder won just one game in 2019, taking home the wooden spoon. But this year they beat Claremont at home to make the finals and it's just so exciting and one of the best players was 15 year old Margaret River sensation Ella Roberts she kicked two goals the league's leading goal kicker Kira Phillips kicked one and Bailey Malloy the other one so it was uh, 28 to 13 a bit low scoring but can you blame them in a literal hurricane that's it I've I'm a poet I'm saying it and the Lou Nitter medal which is for best on ground. I love this. Lou Nitter came from Geelong, Victoria, went to WA and joined the under-11s boys team and just won every sort of best and fairest All-Australian team nominations, boundary umpiring, a total hero. So there's an award named after her. That went to Chloe Wrigley. So go Thunder. What an exciting time. That's so exciting. So we've talked about how it's been a season like no other and I think that's going to extend now to the end of season and, of course, to our finals season. Are there going to be Mad Monday celebrations, Alicia? Well, this is the thing. Can you imagine a time without a Mad Monday? I love that even in the Emmys, Bob Odenkirk was living under his garden shed. They went to all the celebrities and what they've been up to. And how do you celebrate when you can't celebrate? And it was reported that earlier in the month that AFL told clubs there'll be no Mad Monday celebrations in Queensland this year as they want to avoid any further off-field controversy, which we all know about. And on the AFL website itself, it says the AFL and its clubs have been working on a unified plan designed to mitigate potential behavioural risks of players who intend to stay in Queensland when their 2020 seasons are finished. It's understood the AFL will still allow players to consume alcohol, (laughs) that's good, but are worried about any troubles of Mad Monday from the past. And there's been talk during the week about the worry of delisted players because, I mean, you've got pre-season training for 2021 not starting till November 30 at the earliest. You've got a lot of uncertainty and obviously when you've just had such a huge year for everyone, such an emotional year, how do you sort of let go? How do you sort of police that as well? Yeah, it's just interesting that they're keeping their eye on making sure people are behaving. I wonder whether they ever thought that they'd be doing like writing strategy on Mad Monday. Yeah, you can wear this costume, but not, <laughs> but not that one. A despicable me one. That's well, maybe not- maybe they're just going to have to zoom like the rest of us. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's not so bad. Have a house party. So, ladies, are you ready to roll up your sleeves in Malay? Indeed. You bet. Two little nods on my little Zoom screen. (laughs) (laughs) So, it was Indigenous round in the netball and it wasn't all positive. Alicia, what can you tell us about what's happened there? Yeah, there's been a few great articles about this. One I'll mention up front, one in a bit. But there was a great article on ABC Online by... Brittany Carter. Just to set the scene, the Queensland Firebirds issued a late night statement from their coach admitting that they misread community expectations by not playing mid-quarter and proud Waka Waka woman Gemma Mimi in Super Netball's Indigenous Round on Sunday where the Firebirds played the Vixens. Mimi was not given any time in Indigenous Round despite being the league's only Indigenous player. The response branded as weak and pretty ignorant, especially the perception that the Firebirds were reluctant to address any of the fans' outrage and you saw that a lot across social media on the weekend. When the ABC reached out to the club for comment on Sunday night, they were told they had no intention of addressing the matter so that just shows where their head was at. And two Indigenous players are listed who went on to represent the Diamonds throughout their history. Marsha Ella Duncan was the first in 86 and Sharon Finnan White was the second in 1990. But not on that list is Helena Saunders. She's a Guntijmara and Wurundjeri woman and she's a former athlete and mother. Her articles on Indigenous X, and we'll put a link on that uh, for the socials, 
she talks about how she played for the Firebirds, but she has completely been erased from its history. She talks about how it felt when she played, how she felt excluded. And she says when she was playing with them in 1998, Queensland Netball decided that I was going to be the face of netball in the state and I was required to attend different functions. We went to the 98 Gold Coast Indie, but I honestly felt like I was a token Indigenous girl at these events. My last season before I quit the Firebirds, I was named co-vice captain. There is also no mention of that anywhere. Netball Australia cannot allow this to be another Indigenous player to be used just for media purposes, she goes on to say. I'm a mother now. I have two young girls and I don't want them playing netball, not until Netball Australia actually fixes the structural racism and classist attitudes that plague the sport. Now, I looked her up and couldn't find references to her, but maybe that does live somewhere. But this weekend, looking to pay tribute to the First Nations people where the athletes wore intricate and colourful dresses with Indigenous art, they took part in cultural ceremonies that aim to give recognition to players like Ella Duncan and Finn and White. This does seem very tone deaf. But just last week, Netball Australia acknowledged that more needed to be done by the governing body in its pathway system. Given that 4% of Australian participants identify as Indigenous people at the grassroots level, but only one Indigenous player is in Super Netball. The Firebirds did release that statement from coach Rosalie Jenke saying Mimi's benching was due to a selection issue. She said, the decision was not to put Gemma on the court was the right one from a game strategy perspective. However, we misread community expectations and the significance of Gemma's court time in the game with this round. And Marsha Ella Duncan went on to say, this is nothing more than deflection. We are wonderful at deflecting and dissembling and ultimately failing to take responsibility, Ella Duncan said. The system itself does not accept responsibility, nor does it accept that there are failures in the system for a particular race of people. So this was really a big deal and the Diamonds obviously didn't read it well. What did you guys think? Well, yeah, it was a really disappointing story, Alicia, and it's also a problem that we've talked about in recent years in the AFL, where there, in the AFL women's, where there uh, has been an underrepresentation of uh, Indigenous women in the competition and Indigenous women lost to the game. The AFL has been trying to work on that and major sporting organisations have a lot more work to do. I think the issue here is seeing, I guess, paying lip service to an issue or um, to a group of people rather than actual you know, full proper action. And the fact that even in that statement, it talks about Gemma doing work during the whole of Indigenous Round to help bring cultural awareness and to to teach and to share her story. And I feel for Gemma because this should have been a round of celebration for her. And it sounds like she's had to do a whole lot of work and now, you know, is dealing with the fallout. So I hope that she's got good people around her. I really, I wanted to bring up a story from a few weeks ago and it's kind of a, it's a few things that have been playing on my mind, but a few weeks ago, Essendon player Connor McKenna retired with immediate effect and returned home to Ireland. Before he left, he spoke to ABC reporter Catherine Murphy and it's kind of rare to hear a player speak so openly about what they really think about the Melbourne footy media. Connor, amongst a few things, labelled as disgraceful the way that he was treated by some sections of the AFL media after he was diagnosed with COVID-19. He felt that there was a rush to be first with the story and no consideration for either the truth or for how he was actually doing as a, as a person with a scary disease. He was also particularly shocked, I think, by the focus on his nose and the video footage of him blowing it. You know, we were too. We talked about his treatment at that time. And the reason I'm returning to this story is that over the past few weeks, I've been really thinking about the ways in which the bodies of athletes are policed. And Connor's case is something I think that we should all learn from. I get the feeling that he felt quite dehumanized by the way that he was treated by sections of the media. But sometimes the policing of bodies can have other ramifications. And I'm thinking particularly of the story of Grace Hull, who told her story to ABC's Amanda Shalala last week. Grace was a promising junior swimmer, but pressure from coaches to be thin and to lose weight saw her give up the sport. She tells Amanda about how at 11 she had to keep a food diary and at 15 she was having public weigh-ins and skin fold tests. At the age of 15 she was it was also suggested to her that she should have a breast reduction. That shocked me. 
yeah, at the age of 15. Yeah, that's extraordinary. But stories like this and also one that was in the conversation late last year, which we'll link to, are really starting to shed light on how a number of female athletes across various sports have been pressured to lose weight by coaches and in some cases by sponsors. And that's ultimately caused them to leave their sport. There's a significant issue here about the hierarchical power relationships between coach and athlete, but also how I guess those idealized notions of what the female body should look like often drives that pressure rather than actual sports science. So an idea that you should look a particular way because that will make it fast, make you faster without really taking into account the particulars of of an individual's body. Young women going through puberty are particularly at risk, I think, here because it's a time when the body's undergoing so much change and change that you really can't control in in the way that, you know, what's growing and, and your size and shape. Also, we're not always good about being able to talk about things like menstrual cycles, let alone understanding their effect on performance. These articles really illustrated how some athletes who've been encouraged to lose weight actually end up with a syndrome called REDS, Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. So basically that means that they end up not having enough energy input to match their output and that can affect their menstrual cycle, bone density, cardiovascular health, immunity and of course their performance and it can have lifelong effects. We need to understand that the way that particular bodies are valued over others is unhelpful and potentially dangerous. In sport that means that We should not assume that we can see fitness, um, and I think that's a really important point for commentators. We shouldn't be making athletes conform to stereotypes of what we think a swimmer or a runner looks like. But practically, I think it's really important for sports to be making sure that coaches have good access to to research-based information and also limit the pressure that managers or even sponsors can have over the way that an athlete looks. I'm thinking here particularly about young female footballers who are coming into the system who may not have coaches who understand some of these different pressures. So I think it's something that's really important from grassroots all the way to the elite level. But it's also worth considering how the way that we value certain bodies in a kind of hierarchy and how we sort of assign them value actually contributes to systems of oppression. So go with me here. This is something I'm still getting my head around, but I want to recommend to you all an episode of Brene Brown's podcast, Unlocking Us, where she spoke to Sonia Renee Taylor about her book, The Body's Not an Apology. Taylor's thinking on this subject is compelling and it's really just making my brain ping about all of these different things, I guess, you know, systems of oppression, the way that we value bodies and the pressure on young athletes. So it actually brought to mind the story of Casta Semenya and the fact that the way that her body is not valued is really leading to oppression for her. Have you got an update on that story, Kate? I have, and it very much resonates with what you've just been talking about, Lucy, about policing athletes valuing and devaluing bodies and also dehumanising athletes. So we've been following this case for a long time on this podcast, and I've talked about it in depth before, but there has been a very big development in the last couple of weeks. Semenya, of course, is a South African athlete, Olympic champion, world champion, runner. She, in recent years, has challenged a set of guidelines put out by the World Athletics Federation designed to govern athletes with what's called differences of sex development. So these are essentially a set of rules that limit the ability of women who have higher than average levels of testosterone to compete, in, but in very specific events. In fact, the, the events that Semenya herself um, competes in, the rules essentially limit the ability of athletes to compete unless they are willing to undergo treatment to reduce their natural levels of testosterone. Now, you might remember that last year, Semenya took her case to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. She lost there, and so she appealed to the next court up in the system, which is the, uh, the Swiss Federal Supreme Court. The court was simply examining whether the decision by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, and I'll quote here from the decision, whether it violates fundamental and widely recognised principles of public order. That was the test before them. Essentially, the court found that it 
that the rules did not. The rules are okay, they can stand. And the effect of this is that Semenya needs to reduce her testosterone levels through uh, some kind of medical intervention if she wants to continue to compete, including at next year's Tokyo Olympics. She's indicated that she won't. But yes, essentially, uh, Semenya continues to be out of the sport. The Swiss Supreme Court said, fairness in sport is a legitimate concern and forms a central principle of sporting competition. It is one of the pillars on which competition is based. And they argue that it would be unfair for Semenya to compete, unfair to the other athletes because she has this natural condition. I've said before on this podcast that I find it really troubling. I think it's a very narrow idea of fairness. They don't seem to take into account how unfair it is to Semenya that she would have to take medication to change her natural hormonal composition. But they also found that Semenya's guarantee of human dignity hasn't been compromised by the rules. What's interesting here is that Semenya may take the case further. She might go to the European Court of Human Rights. I should say that the European Court of Human Rights has uh, ruled on issues to do with human dignity and human rights before. So I would really like to see what happens if Semenya takes the case to them. I think it could be a huge and very important development in sports law. Yeah, for me, a very, very disappointing, a predictable but really disappointing decision. I saw a joint statement from the South African Human Rights Commission and the Commission for Gender Equality, and they've called the IAAF's new regulations a severe violation of the rights of female athletes and have gone so far as to link it to potentially impinging on the rights of all women and people. And so it'll be really interesting to keep following that. Something else that we saw this week was a historic payout to former AFL player Sean Smith. He was awarded just over $1.4 million after his insurance company found that he was totally and permanently disabled from the brain injuries acquired during his career as a footballer. Kate, what does this mean for the code and for other players? In my view, it has some implications for the future of uh, footy, but perhaps not quite as wide-ranging as we might assume. So the background and context is really important here. Smith took out total and permanent disablement insurance when he was a player 25 years ago or so based on some financial advice he'd gotten at the time. And my understanding from what I've read is that he acquired a particular insurance policy for himself that differed from that that other AFL players of the era had had and perhaps even uh, in the years intervening. He then developed mental health issues over time and he has argued that they are connected to concussions that he sustained during his career. The insurer disagreed and I think also disagreed that he had a total and permanent disablement or disability. Now the insurer has now agreed to pay and uh, apparently this is a first in Australia. So it is important but that said, it's it's about his specific situation. So we have a situation where Sean Smith has a specific history of concussions in footy, a particular medical history that might differ from other players, a history of concussion under a particular insurance policy, the details of which really matter. And all of those details together mean that in this case, he as an individual was entitled to receive compensation. That doesn't mean that every single footballer who has been concussed in the past or even now and experiences medical issues will automatically be entitled to compensation. So it's not a sort of legal precedent in that sense. Friend of the pod and uh, a leading sports law expert, Professor Jack Anderson, who's based at Melbourne Law School, did speak about this a few days ago and he made the point that one of the issues in footy for a long time has been trying to make a link between contact and concussion and these sort of longer term injuries, cognitive injuries and so on. And so he makes the point, and I'll quote here, that this insurance payout is a recognition that there is causation. So in other words, that there is this link and that's why it's important. It's also important to bear in mind that the specifics of Sean's case matter. And it's also an an historic case. So it's based on different or uh, non-existent concussion protocols from back in the day. A lot has changed since then. You know, our understanding of concussion is also developing. The other thing that Jack Anderson said is that he wonders whether it'll provide some impetus or added pressure for a redress scheme, so a compensation scheme of some kind, 
to be set up for past players and also for, for current players, perhaps if the criteria are satisfied, based on independent medical assessments. That's a, a common model in a lot of areas of, of life, including actually in the United States, where the NFL has faced a class action in recent years and set up its own compensation scheme. So, Kate, just quickly, you mentioned compensation schemes. Are these always a good thing? Oh, well, that's a good question, Lucy. I think the simple answer to that is yes, if they're uh, designed well and run effectively. And I've had a lot of experience with them as a lawyer who's done a lot of personal injury work and some of those schemes work well, some of them not so well. Uh, I mentioned the NFL example earlier. There was a really interesting article in the conversation this week critiquing the NFL scheme. And I think it's a cautionary tale for the AFL if they decide to go down this route. And so it was a piece written by Matt Ventresca and Kate Henner in the conversation. We'll link to it on our socials. They explained that after a class action in the NFL in 2012, they set up a compensation scheme. They put about a billion dollars into it. But two players have come forward alleging that they have been victims of racial discrimination under the scheme. And I'm just going to read a key passage from the article by Matt and Kate to you. They say that these players have alleged a discriminatory testing regime where doctors can apply different baseline standards, that is, when assessing uh, players for compensation. They write, black former players have been automatically assumed through a statistical manipulation called race norming to have started with worse cognitive function than white former players. The use of race norming in neuropsychology seeks to account for historical trends showing black people may have lower average scores on cognitive tests than white people. The rationale for creating lower benchmark scores for black people is to prevent them from being subject to overdiagnosis of cognitive impairment. Race norming adjusts for racial biases within the cognitive tests, but it does not eliminate them. In the NFL's case, the lower average baseline makes it harder for black applicants to, to demonstrate that they have suffered severe cognitive impairment compared to their white counterparts. Um, and here I just wanted to acknowledge and mention the research of a good friend of mine, Associate Professor Genevieve Grant, who's based at Monash University. She's written on some of those issues, particularly the way that compensation schemes can be sexist. And so the upshot really of all of it is that if the AFL decides to go down this pathway and establish a compensation scheme for concussion-related injuries, they really need to design it very carefully with the input of experts like Genevieve Grant and Kate Henner and Jack Anderson and others to ensure that it doesn't contain within it a set of racist and sexist assumptions and ideas and therefore reproduce old problems, produce new ones, exacerbate uh, old harms. Recently, Emma caught up with one of footy's good guys, Dennis Armfield, to see how he was going in lockdown and they had a wide-ranging chat. Dennis Armfield played 145 games for Carlton, but what I remember most about his playing days was his commitment to community, which was recognised when he was awarded the Jim Steins Community Award. And he was always spoken about as a great man and a good club person. I most recently saw Dennis pulling on the orange socks to promote Carlton Respects on Instagram. Our paths have crossed so many times and we've shared great fleeting conversations about the role footy has in promoting healthy relationships and social connections that can assist wellbeing and good mental health. It is an absolute pleasure to spend my morning talking to Dennis Armfield. Welcome to the Outer Sanctum, Dennis. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Em. Thanks for having me. It's probably one of the nicest intros I've had for a long time. So thank you for that. Yeah, so you're locked in and your work at the moment is really about connection and connecting with people. How are you making that happen in this COVID lockdown? Yeah, it's been a very difficult one, if I'm honest. We, we, you know, For me, it's all about social connections and being together and, and creating a team of people around you that can make your life a better one. And yeah, it's difficult during COVID. I think just, you know, finding different ways, you know, like we are right now, Zoom, finding phone calls um, and just trying to stay connected as much as possible. Uh, difficult, but get resilient, get grit and let's get, let's get busy. I think of you as a thought leader and I know you've created programs and you activate programs that actively break down the hallmarks of toxic masculinity. That must be challenging when you can't sit face to face with other men at this time. I'd love to hear your purpose and your values that led you to this kind of work. My purpose in life and my motto is, is live to give and to, 
to help people become and self-discover their best self. And I was fortunate enough, I was able to get a job post-football with Elephant & Co, which was, you know, we're all about um, empowering people to become more proactive in life, in all aspects of their life, personal health, partners, parenting, um, professional and, and play, you know, finding room to, to refill their personal fuel tank and, um, you know, encouraging people to live their best life. I think, um, you know, we just need to keep being there for those around us and trying to lift them up and keep them going and, and encourage them to use this time to reboot, pivot, change, look for the new ways, look for the opportunities in life because we're only as strong as our weakest link. And I think, well, if we keep pushing each other down, you know, the Australian, especially Australian tall poppy syndrome, I sit there and go, well, how are we ever going to get stronger as a, as a society? And I think let's keep lifting each other up. As corny as it says, I keep, keep spreading love. When we see a response, especially from the, the footy community, when, say, for example, Danny Frawley's passing and we know that he was open about some mental health challenges that he had, do you see that? I mean, we're very responsive, I suppose, in those moments to talk about and try and promote men's health and men's mental health. Do you see that we're too responsive? Like, is there more, is there more movement in the prevention of these, of these moments and of these kinds of illnesses? It's very interesting. You know, I think we are slowly taking steps forward as a society, especially when it comes to men's health and men's mental wellbeing. Um, we do have people now that are coming out and telling their story more and, and louder and prouder, and, and which is great because it's giving other men an opportunity to, to learn from that and to understand that they're not alone in, in whatever they're dealing with. The next step, though, is actions and, and taking those actions. And I think, um, like you said, we are very reactive. It's, we need something to happen. We'll make a big song and dance about it. We'll have some good action for, you know, a few weeks after that. And then where do we all sit? And, you know, they say it takes 90 days to create a habit. And are we executing that 90 days? I don't know. But I think we are definitely starting the conversation. I think we're definitely making some small inroads. I think we still have a lot of room to, to play when it comes to the actions um, and probably being more proactive than reactive in life. And um, when that lump first appears, going and getting it checked out instead of waiting until it's cancer. And um, when you can't have that awkward conversation with a, a partner or a friend because you're worried about it, but then it just builds and builds and builds and then you explode on, onto that person. And I think it's, it's about let's get comfortable with the uncomfortable, be able to have a conversation, be open and honest, have that awkward conversation at the very start that can you know, keep the little molehill a molehill. You've, yeah. you've spoken about um, on social media, you've been really open about your IVF journey and um, the challenges that you guys had in conceiving this baby that, that she's carrying at the moment. Did you turn to your mates and speak to male friends about that? I've often wondered when IVF is the journey, how much, because I know my girlfriends and I talk about it a lot, but how mm. much do you speak to your male friends about it? Yeah, it was interesting. I'm probably a little bit different when it comes to uh, male mentality. So it's probably easier for me. But um, yeah, look, um, it's been one hell of a journey and um, one I definitely called upon a lot of friends. Um, and it's amazing when you actually start the conversation, how many people that you know are actually still going through that same process. And, and I think if it wasn't for me and others opening up that conversation, I don't think I would have ever found that out. And yeah, turned to a lot of close mates that, you know, have helped me through. Um, some are still helping me through. Um, you know, I've gone through an emotional roller coaster, if I'm honest, from super excited to super scared to everything in between. And um, yeah, I, I think I've called, I'm big on mentorship. Um, you know, I've got some great mentors in my life, you know, Jeremy, my father, David Talala and, and good friends as well that have just gone through a journey that I, um, I'm about to embark on and, and I'd be silly not to pick their brain and ask them questions and, and tell them and share them, you know, because yeah, if we fight alone, we, uh, it's a lot, it's a lot bigger battle. And I think, um, you know, the biggest life and the greatest life journey is that with someone else and that with others. And I think I'm, I'm trying to encourage as many people to come on my little roller coaster of life and enjoy it and celebrate the highs and, and pick me up when I'm low. You're massive on allyship and community. I wanted to ask you about your playing in the game during the Adam Goods booing saga. You were playing the night that he did the celebratory dance. And from all reports that night, no one at the ground thought anything of it. It was kind of when it hit the media. The media turned it into some, you know, radical protest. When you think back on that moment, what was the allyship like? for either Adam or for the other Aboriginal and Indigenous players that were side by side with you at that time? Yeah, it was interesting. I remember him kicking the goal and um, 
he came over and did his traditional, you know, dance. And like you said, I didn't think much of it. I thought, you know, credit to him. He's kicked a pretty clutch goal and he's done his celebration and he's got a bit of culture in where he has. And, and that's great. And did we handle it great? No, not at all. And I, I think it comes back to education. And I think that was something that we were, you know, myself and especially the Carlton Football Club were, were keen to do was to educate our players. You know, we had uh, Leon Egan, who's a, a great Indigenous man come in and present to us. And he asked us a question at the very start um, on a, on a scale of zero to a hundred, how much do you think your education on Indigenous culture do you think you have? And I was like, well, I've grown up, you know, with a lot of Indigenous people influencing my life. I've been great mates with Eddie Betts, Chris Yarrow, Jeff Garlitz, and, you know, just to name a few. And um, you sort of sit there and go, well, you know, I've asked some questions. I got to know their life and how they operate. And so I said about, you know, 15, 20%. Um, I thought that's pretty low for me and um, it was interesting Leon Egan sat us down and said well I'm a pretty proud Indigenous man and you know he's done a lot of research and he goes I'm about four percent and I just went wow like that's a rude awakening to how far off I am and and I just sit there and go that's where we are as a as a, as a culture in Australia and I think that's the you know you see Eddie Betts he, he cops it left right and centre every single week you know and, and it is sad and it's got to stop and you still see it in social media and all of that it comes back to that education we are so far from understanding anything dennis thank you so much for spending some time with us on the outer sanctum today we wish you and abby all the very best and we can't wait to see who this little person's going to be no thanks sam thank you very much for the opportunity to just come on and say good day and connect with someone during this crazy time and look like like i said just keep spreading the love keeps um keep being there for one another and let's make sure we keep fighting and get out of this COVID sooner rather than later okay everyone you know what time it is it is the fifth quarter and to be honest anything could happen here's nick and rana Last indeed, Rana saying, Oh my goodness, you bring it up a notch every single time. I just, oh, I don't know about that one. We're time. running out of music, we're running out of options here. Luckily, it's almost the end of the season, as you say. So, this is the fun bit where we get to, you know, I mean, it's all fun, isn't it, Rana? But extra fun bit where we get to talk about stuff we've been doing not watching the footy tell me what's been filling your days these this last week i have been watching a show on stan called i hate susie and it stars 90s pop sensation billy piper who i loved as a teenager and she plays a mega pop star whose fame is dwindling who then finds herself um, in the middle of a nude pictures scandal new pictures are leaked of her Basically, every episode is a stage of grief. So the whole uh, series is basically taking you the 
through the stages of grief. It's a really quirky, funny show that you just don't expect. She's very weird and silly in, in it, and it really shows off the acting chops of Billy Piper. Um, if you were a fan before, you're going to love her in this. But it's really, it's really beautifully done. She, you know, there are times where she bursts into song. It's a lot of close-ups on her face and reaction shots. She, it's just, it's excruciating to go through this journey with her and the fallout of these pictures being leaked and what it means for her life. But there's so much in it around female desire and sexuality. And her character is very much a woman who has learnt how to behave and behaves in what she thinks a woman and how she thinks a woman should behave, but it's not necessarily what she actually wants to do. And so it's so relatable. I, I just loved it. And I think everybody should be watching it. So it's called I Hate Susie and it's on Stan and it's very absorbing. So it's, it actually kind of takes you away. It's great. Oh, wow. That sounds really, I have not even heard of it, but yeah, I remember Billy Piper. I've got vague memories, yeah. but um, yeah, no, I, I can't even picture what she looked like now, but that will be fun to revisit. She looks exactly the same. <laughs> oh, really? oh, that's just yeah. heartbreaking. <laughs> what have oh. you been up to? So I'm, Continuing with my girls, we're doing a lot of revisiting stuff, you know, that we really loved when we didn't feel the pressure to watch something all of the time because we had so many hours. And in honour of the Emmy Awards, um, you might have noticed that Zendaya won, 24-year-old, mm. our first, I think she's the second black woman to win the lead actress for Emmy and the youngest to 24. She's extraordinarily talented, incredibly charismatic actor and it's her series euphoria that she was nominated for and that's what i wanted to talk about today because it look it, it, i'm a really big fan of this series my daughters turned me on to it really early on we kind of watched it we all watched it separately uh but we want to watch it all again together now look it's very challenging content and i think you've got to think about if you want to watch it with your teens or younger people just to kind of be mindful of their readiness for that or to talk to them about it um, because it does have some fairly, it deals with, you know, a bunch of teenagers in America. Um, there's a big issue um, around drugs because the character that Zendaya plays is Rue, who is a recovering addict and we meet her in her recovery and she's really, you know, really struggling. And obviously you sort of don't know until the series unfolds but there there was a significant meltdown a very public kind of humiliating moment you know that drove her to rehab and she's not having a great time of it now that she's out of there she lives with her mum and her sister it's really kind of looking at her group of friends that overlap a little bit there's um, you know there's a, a really gorgeous character played by hunter schaefer who's a trans woman and she plays a trans woman in this jules who and jules and rue develop a really powerful intense friendship very early on the series gets into it does not in any way glorify drug use that's the first thing i'm going to say there has been criticism about it being very graphic there is a lot of violence because rue can't entirely escape that drug world uh, it's a very small town or, you know, small area and there's a lot of overlap with the dealer that she used to buy her drugs from. And, you know, the, the reality is it is a very small space to escape and, and, and a habitual thing that's really difficult to break free from. So there are some quite challenging violent scenes that are probably I wouldn't mind them pairing back a tiny bit. <laughs> some of the drug mm. use is really challenging to watch. It's a really candid and quite extraordinary exploration of um, sexuality as well and gender issues and all those sorts of things. I, I have to say that this, the sex is handled beautifully and really felt very authentic. It's probably only the violence that I had a little bit of a challenge with. So that's something to think, of my, think about if you are going to watch. You know, there is some content there to, to be keeping in mind. But basically, it really shines a light on the challenges facing teens, the reality that drugs and these negative influences, especially in some of these smaller towns, are a big part of cultural life for, for teenagers and there isn't a lot of escape for them. It makes it sound grim and I, and I would say that there are scenes that are, but it's so beautifully shot. It's really very creative and artistic in the way it's done. The cinematography is gorgeous and the soundtrack is to die for. So really encourage people to, to give it a go with, those, uh, with that caveat in mind about some of the violence. Yeah, just to celebrate this extraordinary talent who we are going to see a lot from here a lot more from yeah, there's a, a 
a clip of her being told, sitting there with her family and her yes. friends, being told that she's won. It is beautiful. She's just such a great character, a great personality as well. Um, so, yeah, looking forward to hearing more from Zendaya too. I love Zendaya. I'm so happy that she won. But, Nick, that does sound full on. I don't know if I'm ready for that. It's <laughs> not for everyone. for restrictions to ease. <laughs> it, might be, it might be a post-lockdown kind of treat. <laughs> I'm going to look at it. Yeah, when I feel like I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think we've got to think. I think that's good words to live by for every aspect of life. When I feel like I'm ready. Yeah. Okay, so it's about time for us to get out of here. But before we go, have you got any last business, ladies? Alicia? Well, what do you think of when I say Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and Hook were big in this year? You could buy Vanilla Ice Electronic Rap Game or Lisa Simpson themed roller skates and Ed Sheeran was born. That's right. It is 1991, the grand final between Hawthorne and, of course, the Eagles. So what do we remember about that besides who won the game was the Batmobile that Angry Anderson and Rob DiCostella journeyed on like some fantasy on a baby blue Chrysler Valiant, a 1971 at that. It's for sale. Apparently, the owner bought the 1970 Chrysler VG Coupe from a friend nine years ago and said that he didn't have high hopes when he put it up for sale during COVID. Doesn't he know how much we, we love it? I think as the Outer Sanctum, we should get together. Yep. It's, it's the three of us. We'll decide that now. And as we record this, it's up to $20,000. Now, the car works, but it isn't roadworthy and would be more of a collector's item. Can you imagine it going down the road? Bits of it would fall off. But that baby blue, some toilet paper ticket parade and the beautiful setting sun at Waverley is a highlight for me. What about you guys? I think I love it. And I love, I did actually go and have a look at this and I love how it says, used condition, local pickup only. <laughs> And I must say that if it's up to $20,000, that is, at this stage in my view, a steal. (laughs) So Kate's buying it for us all. How about you, Kate? Any last business? (laughs) Oh, look, I wanted to uh, just mention something on a more serious note, but it is also a pleasant story. I wanted to congratulate Russell Jackson, who is a good friend of ours and a well-known sports journalist. He was just awarded the Grant Hattam Award for Journalistic Excellence for his story of former St Kilda player Rob Muir. Uh, So huge congratulations to Russell and, of course, most importantly to Rob Muir, who was very brave in sharing his story and coming forward. And just before we get out of here, on behalf of all of us, I think I'd like to say Vale to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She is someone who's inspired many of us and will continue to do so. There's so many of her quotes that I could use here, but one I particularly love is that women belong in all places, decisions are being made. Another one I heard today was, whatever you choose to do leave tracks and I guess that's you know that's what we're trying to do here so Vale may her memory be a blessing and keep doing push-ups till you're 87. (laughs) So there is only one thing left to say ladies go Go footy. footy! Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.